I mean, this area produces billions of dollars in, in, in food. Mm-hmm. I mean, this county is the largest ag county in the state. There's a low amount of, of that food that actually stays here. It's mm-hmm. exported or, it, or it's shipped off somewhere. Um, and, and with our store, my whole point was, let's bring that here. Let's bring that to the community. Because when you have neighbors that live next to an orchard, but they can't even get the cherries from that orchard, mm. you know, there, there's a disconnect there. So let's make it so that that food stays here and you can go to that store. Um, and not even just our store. I mean, there's several of these that you can go and you can buy the food that is grown here because there's just a massive disconnect. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Today on the podcast, we talk with Nicole Durding of Post 5 Cattle Company here in Afredo, Washington, learning about how beef is raised and how ranching works here in Washington State and the things that she's trying to do to bridge the gap back to the consumer, cut out the middleman, and have local food available to her community. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is my continuing journey to get to know the real people behind our food in Washington State. Nicole. Hi. Nice to finally meet you. Nice meeting you. I think I've been trying to get out here to post five cattle company for like a year or something. I think even longer than that. You're a really busy person. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Talk about first, I mean, you you guys grow beef. We do. Protein. Yes. For people to eat. We do. Talk about what's the busy day with that. And I know you've got, and we're going to get into like all the other stuff that you do too, but first talk about growing beef, growing cattle. Um, well, we are post five cattle. Uh, we are kind of comprised of two different operations. So we've got Mm -hmm. a cow calf and then we've got two feed yards down in the lower Yakima Valley. Uh Uh, I kind of oversee the cow calf. My husband oversees the grow yards Mm -hmm. and right about before COVID, uh, I'd kept having this inkling of doing our own direct marketing of our own beef and kind of went down that path. And that's what we are now. Uh, we've got a little retail store in Efreda. We ship a lot uh, over to the west side of the state via UPS. And we sell to some restaurants in Wenatchee as well. Oh my goodness. A lot. Okay, a lot of stuff in there that I'm going to have to unpack. Okay. By the way, I went to that retail store that you were setting up. Okay. I was trying to catch up with you. Yes. But you weren't there. I was not there. That was right when the store was, uh, you were just getting everything set up. Yes. It's a really cool spot. So I do want to talk about that. And this whole move to direct marketing, which is, I think, such a cool trend, especially here in Washington State, because we have so many different things. We have such a desire for people that want to eat local food. We do food grown right here yes. in this state and you're making that more possible for people to do yes prior to doing that how are you like where did your beef go like it went to kind of the the bigger system yes ends up in the grocery store kind yep. of thing yep yep so uh of our cow calf everything would go into our feed yards uh and then, yeah, they would get sold to either Tyson uh, or to Agri-Beef, which is Washington Beef and Toppenish. Okay. And so that's where everything went up until that point in time. 
So do you still have some of your beef that goes that way? We do. Okay. We are a uh, probably a medium-sized cow-calf operation. So I would love to direct market all of our meat one day. It's just right. that's a, that it would be a lot of beef that we would have to move. Yeah, that's so, what I was going to ask. Like, it, it, would it be possible even for you to like do take all the beef that you guys produce and have been producing year after year, and totally cut out the middleman? But that's it would be a it would yeah. it would be a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I uh, there's an Instagram page that I follow and out of Northern California, she's got a massive market and they probably run half of what we do. And I, I mean, she's got, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of followers and they, they still don't even move that much meat. Right. So it's a, it's a good goal, but I don't know. <laughs> is that what it takes to, to connect people with the food that you grow is social media followers and stuff like that? I mean, I... 10, 20 years ago, we would have said, oh, that kind of sounds silly, but that's the world that we live in. Yeah, yeah. We went about it a a different way. Um, So we work with a consultant who kind of helped us, uh, okay, this is your target audience. This is what you want to do. And then we kind of went with a ripple effect. Um, And so my husband and I are both Cougs. Uh, He used to play football for WSU. Uh, A lot of farmers loved him back then. Uh, So we kind of targeted that market first. We started really small. We started with Cougs. Um, And then those Cougs told their friends, they told their family, and it kind of just rippled out from there to where um, social media is not really my thing. I don't really enjoy it. And so... uh, I try to stay off of it. I try to do a couple posts a week, maybe at most. Um, and so we we just went about it a different way than I think what other direct marketers have to go through with social media. Um, we still use it. We just don't rely on it as a way to sell meat anymore. It's more of a way to like, here's what we're doing. Here's what the kids are doing, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, it's a challenge, but it's an opportunity too that we didn't have in the past no to connect directly with customers correct consumers people who can eat local food yep what's it been like hearing from the what what do they say about being able to connect directly with the very people who are growing this meat people they they love it i mean i five years ago ten years ago i would say like the big thing was organic you know everybody wanted their food to be organic and now it when you look at the trends it's that's kind of moving away and it's it's more about having that relationship with whether it's your pork producer or your chicken producer your beef you know the guy growing your zucchini it doesn't matter they just want that connection um and so with social media it, it gives us that tool um you know i think before that it was probably blogging um and i i that would be not up my (laughs) wheelhouse uh but it just allows us to stay connected and allows us to meet people. Um, it allows you to talk about maybe the more sensitive topics like antibiotics um, or steroids or anything like that. Um, and it, but it puts a face to it. It's it's giving you that background, and it's not this like promotion or not even say promotion, but it, it's not like an article put out by the Beef Commission right. or something right. where you know people are hesitant because it's that it's that agency right it's, it's the producer saying this is yeah. why we have to do this yeah so well it's i i think this is changing our food system yes and i think it's changing it for the better but mm-hmm. also it sounds from the outside it sounds really easy but it does take a lot of work like, it does like you're describing all this stuff that's like 
I wouldn't have even thought about all these aspects that you've just listed now. Yeah. Let's go back to the basics though. Okay. And talk about cattle. Sure. You talk about a cow-calf operation. Yep. What does that really mean? Like, how, how does that work? So cow-calf is mamas. Uh, these are all old, old mamas that uh, cannot make it up on our forest service permits. So they get to stay here um, and be fed a little bit heavier of a ration uh, to help them keep in good condition. Uh, these ones will actually go out on this triticale that's growing out here mm. um, shortly. But so what the cow-calf is, is mamas and babies. You know, uh, they, we breed them and then they calve uh, first part of the year. We've got the babies. Um, and then at some point in time, they will go to our feed yards, mm -hmm. get finished, get put in, hopefully get put into our box beef program. So cow-calf, mamas and babies, like where are the calves born? Like where, where does that happen? Yeah. So uh, this place is new to us to this year. Um, so we've kind of switched our operation. Uh, they will all be born here um, mm -hmm. on various circles. Up until that point in time though, we uh, relied heavily on rotational ground from area farmers. And so mm -hmm. we would work with area farmers who would have corn stalks or triticale or some sort of crop residue. And we would put them out there where they would eat that residue down and then they would calve out on that residue. So they get to go out and munch on whatever's left Correct. of the corn stalks or whatever after yep. they've been harvested kind of thing. Correct, yep. And the basin is kind of a hot spot for that. Uh, we've yeah. got um, we've got the feed stuff. And so there, there's, producers from Goldendale, there's producers from Kittitas, there's producers kind of from all over that will ship their cows here to calve out because of all the crop residue that's here. So these cows, I mean, they're here in the yard right now yep. eating, yep. probably because they just got food delivered Correct. to them. Yep. But they actually spend a lot of their lives out roaming on some kind of pasture. Yes. Yeah. The only reason why they're in here right now is we are allowing that triticale to get a little bit taller before we turn them out there. So, yeah, but most of the, most of our cows, you know, 90, 95% of their life is spent out on either crops or the forest service permits or yeah. dry ground. Okay. Talk, so talk about that. Cause what you were just describing cows out in fields that may have grown corn or yeah. so, something else. And they're out just kind of munching on what's left over, which is really kind of a cool food waste. Thing, yes. Yep. And allowing them to be out and, you know, pastured essentially. Yep. But talk about this, you know, Forest Service, that's up in the hills, right? It is. And yes. they're just out browsing around for, there's grasses and stuff. Like, how, how does that work? Yeah. So um, we have two Forest Service permits uh, up in the Wakanda area. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is very remote. There is no way you could get in other than hiking or on horseback. Um, wow. So it is steep, rugged country. Um, it's it's beautiful. But so what we do is we go in um, the 1st of June and we've got, there's, we call them meadows and we will put various groups in each meadow. Uh, and then depending on what our plan is with the forest service, we will move them around to keep them grazing down all of these areas. Uh, and that is how you get fire suppression is grazing all of that undergrowth down. So, and both of those permits work like that. And really it's harvesting crops that otherwise couldn't be Correct. harvested and turning it into protein. Correct. Right? Yep. Yep. 
yes yeah that there would be no farming that area here i mean that's how steep it is there's there's no farming there's not even building houses in that area it's it's very remote they will log it but it's they have their own schedule to when they're going to log it so outside of timber that area is not really good for anything else uh, and we have an agreed upon stocking rate and which allows still allows deer elk uh, there's black bear, there's every cougars, there's every sort of animal that is still living in that area because we don't want to disrupt any of that. And the cows can, you know, they're big bovines. They can kind of blend into the yeah. ecosystem there as yeah. well yeah. and be a part of that. Yes. Yeah. We call them our timber cows. So they're, um, they're a little bit bigger framed of a cow uh, and, and they're, they're not the nicest cows, but you kind of want them to <laughs> well, be a little bit more tough, aggressive. Right? right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because, well, I mean, closer to a wild animal in some ways. Correct. Yep. And they have to know that there. area. So like if a, if a calf is born and it's a heifer that we will keep, we will keep her for that permit because she has grown up knowing that area. She has been with her mom, knowing where the springs are, where the creeks are, where the tanks, where the salt, all of that. Yeah. So... And so at what point do they come back out of there? You guys like round them up and we bring do. them back here? We or? do, yeah. So the end of this month, we will start uh, going up there and we'll get a trailer load. They will kind, they're smart. They're, they're the dumbest, smartest animal, uh, <laughs> but they kind of know, they know, hey, something's changing. I got to start dropping down and they will automatically kind of start dropping down um, into these lower meadows. And once we have enough to make a trailer load, we'll go up and we'll get like a big semi load and mm -hmm. then we'll haul them back down here. So they jump on a semi trailer yep. that has room for them to all stand in it. Yep. You bring them here. Then what happens? What, how, how does the process Then continue? they stay here all winter long. We'll feed them. Uh, we've worked with a nutritionist who will format the specific ration for them because even though they are out there on those circles with triticale i think there's a brassica of some sort out there too uh we will still feed them a ration to keep them in good condition and they will live the life up until like the first of february when we start calving what ultimately happens then with the cow you talk about the feed yards. Yeah. Uh, how does that work? Yeah. So when we bring them back here in the fall, we will wean the, the calves off of their moms. Um, they will stay here as well out on, we do fence line weaning. So it's pretty much um, a shared space for the mamas on one side and the babies on the other side. And then there's a couple strands of hot wire. Um, and it's a very low stress method of weaning calves. So those calves will stay here um, up until it just kind of depends on how, like their age and their, their weight when they're weaned. Yeah. And then at that point, um, they will be completely separated, fed a different ration. And then mm -hmm. next year they will go into our feed yards. How does a feed yard work? You know, a lot of people I think have this perception of what that means. Yeah. Well, what's the reality of it? I think the consumers, they think of these like massive you know, 100,000 head feed yards in Colorado and, and right. Kansas. And, and those are out there. I mean, they are. Uh, we, are we are not that big of an operation. Uh, we're still big. We're not that big. Um, those cattle are 
there were so much money that we have to do a very good job of taking care of them. And 99% of what we feed in there are not our own cattle. They are cattle that outside customers have hired us Mm. to finish their cattle. And so if we're not doing a good job of taking care of those animals, we're, we're not gonna make a living. So it's a pretty big open space. Yes. And they can just basically chill out. Yes. Yep. There. Yep. Yep. They're fed two day, two times a day. Um, they are, we call them exercising. They will actually like uh, walk them up and down alleys just to mm-hmm. kind of, they're big fat cattle and they like to just kind of <laughs> mess around and they're yeah. snorting and everything. And then you put them back in their pen and, um, but yeah, they are, they are very, they're very well taken care of. <laughs> so we've got a full-time crew of cowboys whose sole job it is to, is to ride around and assess the health of the cattle hmm. to look at if anything is off. Uh, they will pull that animal and then they will go take it to the, what we call a hospital. Mm-hmm. And then they will take its temperature and, the, and you're just doing pretty much a visual assessment of how that animal is looking and their health. What a process. It is. That starts up in the mountains. Yes. In the forest. Yep. And brings beef to your table. Yes. How are they processed after that? I know that's another difficulty in beef, lots of different meat actually, getting things butchered and prepared so they can actually be sold to the consumer. Mm -hmm. How do you guys do that? So of what is custom fed, that will go to either Washington beef or to Tyson. So, um, and by custom fed, you mean like we other don't people's, own, yeah. from other people's cow calf Correct. operations. Yep. And then they come and, and then finish, finish and chill them. out mm-hmm. yep. on the yard. Yep. Yep. Of our own stuff, um, anything that goes into our boxed beef, that is goes to a USDA facility in Odessa is where that goes. So we actually take them from the lower valley and then haul them to Odessa. They're allowed to sit there for at least one day because the minute that that animal is stressed, then the meat gets, it turns this like really dark red color mm-hmm. and you don't it, it you don't want that you don't like it does not look good so um, animals have to be chill they have no to stress. just be living their life chewing their cud hanging out so yep they will stay there for at least one day to just kind of acclimate and get used to that area where yeah. they then have their one bad day yeah so so here we are now checking out one of you you call these circles yep so that that's because of the irrigation, right? Correct, the pivot that's right out there. So it draws the water in the center. Yep. And that is a big pipe that goes all the way out. And then the whole thing spins in a circle, including Correct. right here right where, where we're, we're standing. Correct, right where we're at, yeah. So what is this field? What's it growing? So this is uh, a mixture of triticale and collards uh, that we planted for winter feed. So we will allow this to grow up a little bit more. And then when we bring those cows back from the permits, then this will all be fenced in and then they will stay here the rest of the winter. So what is triticale? I mean, this looks like grass right it, now. It's a grain crop. Yeah. And it will get to be super tall. Um, if you can just envision kind of really tall wheat uh, yeah. that, but it'll be green. We don't allow it to dry down. Uh, that's, that's what it is. So. And the cows love it? They love it. It's great nutritional value for them. Uh, the cost on it is really good. It's it's a great crop. And also, I would think, 
I'm just going to assume this here. There's some kind of soil health interest here in this kind of mix of crops rather than a monocrop, just one species of whatever. Correct. Yes. Yep. This will help with any sort of erosion control. Uh, it'll help with soil compaction. This circle had sunflowers growing in it up mm. until that point in time. So it allows for a, a rotation to get out of just, you know, it wouldn't be sunflowers back to back, but right. it does allow for um, for a crop rotation. It'll beef up that organic matter because as soon as in the spring, when we go to pull these cows off, we'll uh, incorporate it back into the soil and then we'll plant a different crop. A different crop for the cows or for... Kind of depends on the route that we go. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it everything is fluid. So yeah, yeah. kind of just depends on the, on the time, on the on the winter that we have on the spring, all of that. Yeah. Well, what I've been learning is that grazing and cattle are actually really good for the soil. Yeah. Right? And so this is kind of a rebuilding Correct. phase then this year or whatever for this particular field Correct. is what you're saying. Yep. Correct. Rebuild the soil. Like you said, bring in the organic matter. It's kind of the natural process, right? They yes. just walk around and eat yep. and they poop. And they poop. And yep. the soil actually improves because of it. It does. Yeah. The, I mean, the worst thing for soil is is monocropping of some sort, you know, corn on corn on corn on corn. Right. Um, so anytime that you can get a rotation into anything is going to help with that soil health. Right. So do you guys do other crop farming we, in addition to... The beef? No, like we are strictly, we are 100% beef in okay. some capacity. Yes. Because you said sunflowers, but was that someone else farming Yes, this? we leased this circle out oh, okay. to um, to a seed guy down the road. And that sunf those sunflowers, I believe, go for oil. So. And that's how this land can be, you know, have a rotation of crops. too, Correct. Because you guys don't do sunflowers or whatever, but maybe that's a rotation that can be part of the soil health yes. long term that, you know, building and growing food at the same time on the soil. So yeah, farmers swapping land. Correct. That happens a lot. I think people don't realize, you know, it's not just like that's your field and nobody else uses it. Correct. Is there some trading then some like, well, we'll, you know, grow this in this field of yours there and you can do that in ours kind of thing. Correct. Yeah, that's really common in the basin, um, especially when you get into any sort of potatoes, because uh, most potato farmers only farm potatoes. Yep. So they they and they're anywhere from a five to seven year rotation to come back to a circle. So they're going to want to bounce around as much as they can. There's a really large um, nursery stock grower just two miles south of us. Same thing. They cannot come back in with any sort of root stock into this ground for years. And so everybody, um, soil with the disease and pests and everything. So I, I don't even, I want to say they're even longer than five years before yeah. they can come back in. Um, it, it all comes down to that rootstock's health is yeah. what it is. Just to make sure that there's no. Correct. Because if you grow the same thing in the same spot over and over again, the pests that like that yep. plant will become more and more versus if you rotate and maybe the pests that like rootstock don't like. Correct. Collards and triticale. Yep. And so then they go away. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ever. I mean, everybody here for the most part really kind of 
works with each other as far as, yep, I'm going to take these two circles and you're going to take these other two circles and, and they're just kind of bouncing back and forth with each other. So what's that like being in a community like that? Do people get along pretty well or I mean, uh, for the most, <laughs> I, for the most part, I'm, uh, any farmer that's going to watch this is going to be like, ah, those ranchers, uh, because, uh, some farmers have a hard time understanding, like if we've got, if there's a circle and there's 200 head of cows on there and then they call and they're like, well, we need you off by, you know, next week because mm -hmm. the weather turned and we need to get into that field. It's not the easiest process to then, you know, pick up and move 200 right. head of cows, especially if you're waiting on somebody else's circle to open up. Right. So where you, you can't get into there. Them? Right. Where are you going to stick all those cows? And yep. so, um, most of the time, yes, everybody works out. So like a field like this, you would have to put fence up and stuff all yes. the way around yep. too then. So that even is in and of itself is a big process. Correct. Yeah. And a lot of the times, uh, you've got enough fencing to maybe fence a few circles ahead of yourself, but then you're still having to go back and pull out fence. Um, and I mean, that takes a long time in itself and you're having to move water tanks and you're having to move, um, you know, mineral. I mean, it's, it's not just like a quick process that you can come it's not move. Load up, hey, cows come get in the truck. We'll right. take you a different spot. You Correct. can get, get back out. It's yeah. Yep. It's a, lot, a process. A lot of work. It is. We love it. Just a quick break from our conversation with Nicole here to thank our sponsors making this podcast, these conversations possible in the first place. First, I want to thank CHS Northwest for sponsoring the podcast. They do an awful lot of stuff all over Washington State. I actually used to work for that cooperative um, back when I was young and paying my way through college and planting corn, uh, but they do so many other things. CHS Northwest, uh, we appreciate their support here on the podcast. Also, Dairy Farmers of Washington. Thank you to them for supporting this podcast. You know, we're talking about beef today, but the beef and cattle and dairy world overlap quite a bit. And I encourage you to check out their website, wadairy.org, as they share the real stories of uh, people producing milk and all the wonderful things that they make out of milk here in Washington State. Uh, so thank you to the Dairy Farmers of Washington for their support. And also Save Family Farming for uh, sponsoring what we do here on the podcast. Of course, you can check them out online at savefamilyfarming.org as they share the unified voice of the farming community here in Washington State. Now let's get back to our conversation here in Ephrata, Washington with Nicole Durding. So even though you're raising these animals mm -hmm. for meat, some of them do end up becoming pets. They do. Is what you were just yes. saying yep. when we walked over here. Yep. This guy right here. Roy. Uh, that is Roy. Uh, we <laughs> raised Roy from, he was a bum calf. What does that mean? What's uh, a bum calf? So like he wasn't he, healthy when he was young? No, he was actually a twin. Uh, and okay. so the cow could not raise two calves. Oh, so we pulled yeah. him off. He came and lived with us. Uh, and had he, to feed him by hand then we had feed. to bottle feed him uh actually my kids did and he was kind of just turned into a giant dog and <laughs> was allowed free reign over everywhere he would go across the road to the neighbors uh and hang out with them and they'd have to chase him back over to us 
And now we just didn't have the heart to ship him. So he lives here forever now. Uh, and he's, he's kind of a pain because he's domesticated. So he just stands in the worst spot possible at all points in time um, and expects to be fed all the time as well. So that's hey, Roy. <laughs> Chilling with your buds. Yep. Yeah. He's kind of the king. <laughs> How did you get into this and learn this whole world? And did you grow up? I, around the world of beef and ranching? We always had uh, a few cows. Uh, I grew up in Sela, which is like the heart of orchard country. Yeah. Uh, my dad worked for an orchard. Uh, we didn't have a ranch. We just always had horses and cows and I rodeoed mm -hmm. and all that. Um, it was my husband actually who, he grew up on a large cow-calf in Okanagan. Um, mm. And then when we met and married, uh, he worked for Simplot and we would occasionally get bottle calves from there and we just we started our herd literally from five bottle calves really so yes and yep. just grew it from there we did yep i love the cow calf side that is my my heart uh he grew up with cow calf he does i mean he likes it the feed yards are his true passion so it made sense that we've got cow calf and feed yards right so yeah what I, how did you guys meet we actually met uh, at a tailgate party for Apple Cup. Uh, we had mutual friends because he had graduated. I had transferred in. We met at a tailgate party. I did not like him uh, at all. Really? <laughs> I did not. I thought I did. I thought he was uh, just annoying, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Uh, well, and he was. He had a name for himself. At, he did from football and stuff, he right? Because he was a football player for WSU. He was, yeah. And everybody just thought that he was like the best thing ever. And I was like, this guy is like, why? Uh, yeah. And then I ended up moving to the Trace Cities, which is where he lived. And he was like the only person I knew in the Trace City, or kind of knew. Mm -hmm. um, and he was at a cutting horse facility living there. And I had a horse there. And I just decided he wasn't that bad after all so <laughs> yeah the uh tides turned huh? yeah yeah i mean he's still annoying but it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah he was he lived and breathed ranching his yes. whole life other than going to wsu and being a football star yep, yep. and he was like kind of famous yeah he's he's, his, he's he's okay yeah <laughs> well but talk about his football thing real quickly like what what was he known for at that time um he was and still probably known for yeah. by a lot of people he uh i think you're gonna be like over 40. <laughs> um he was a linebacker and he was he's little for a linebacker mm -hmm. but he's very quick and he he was very quick uh and he was tough and so he could make these hits that he shouldn't have been able to <laughs> And so he just, and I think, I mean, he came from Okanagan, which is a B school. And so yeah. came from literally, you know, the middle of nowhere and was an ag kid. So I think he just had this cult following of fellow ranchers and farmers that were like, hey, you know, this kid can make yeah. it. You know, our kids can too. And yeah. So, yeah. Yep. And just that toughness of growing up in that location yeah. and in that world of ranch, you, you can't yeah. be wimpy and no. do that kind of work because no. you deal with tough stuff all the time. You yeah. gotta be strong Yep. out in the elements, mm -hmm. deal with pain quite a bit. Yep. How's yep. that been for you? Cause you didn't, 
I mean, you grew up around farming, I guess, so you had some of that. But ranching is kind of a yeah, that much more yeah than maybe other kinds of farming as far as kind of putting your body on yeah. the line. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I, it's it is um, when you've got a prolapsed cow at midnight in the first of March and it's blowing snow and you're not going to get a vet out because there's no large animal vets out there. Uh, it's you, it's you doing it. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's that mental and physical toughness of like, I have to do this or this cow is going to die. So, I mean, you've got to be tough. You've got to be strong. Sounds like you've had that exact scenario. Yeah, just, just this last season. Yeah. Wow. We had, we had that situation. So, so yeah. how did it turn out? What? It was fine. Cow was fine. Yeah. Wow. And we actually did get a vet out, thankfully. Uh, but awesome. after a couple hours of unsuccessfully trying to put the prolapse back in. Well, but if, yeah, if the vet can't get there, yeah. you have to be the doctor. Yeah. Yes. For the cow. Yes. So you, and I've had this with any of the ranchers that I've talked to, you have to know, and dairy farmers too, you have to know a lot about animal health. Correct. And really know, maybe not as much as a veterinarian, but... Yeah a good chunk of what they know too, mm -hmm. yeah. to be able to do it. Yep. How have you even learned that? I mean, to me, that's overwhelming to, yeah, I guess it's just being around it and learning from the, the, mm -hmm. you know, the older generation that's doing it there too. Yeah. I think, I think for Will most, that's definite, definitely it. I mean, he grew up with that. He grew up with his mom and his aunts and his uncles, um, you know, just knowing what to do. And for me, uh, I initially went to school to be a large animal vet and then realized that some of the classes were not, <laughs> not fun. Yeah. Um, and so switched gears. But so I did take some pre-vet med classes because I've always had an interest in large animal health. Mm. Um, so for me, I'm still learning and I'm still reading. Um, if we've got a vet out here, I want to be out there with them because I want to know why they're doing it and how they're going to do it. Not that I'm gonna be able to do it, but I wanna know why and how they're doing yeah. it. <laughs> Somebody wants to be a part of the podcast? I guess. <laughs> Maybe that was that calf that was roving around Maybe. earlier trying to raise <laughs> a fuss. Weasel its way back in. So some of those things that you learn, even though you didn't get your degree and become a veterinarian, which is like a super long, grueling educational process oh, to yeah. become a full-fledged vet right yep. but even some of those classes that you took mm -hmm. have helped oh yeah with yep the stuff that you do caring for the animal yes Sansa. definitely i think a lot of people have that in animal agriculture a lot of what you said i you know i i wanted to be a large animal vet got into it realized it was maybe a, a bit different or a bit more than what i expected mm -hmm. i hear that from so many people mm-hmm but I guess what I've never really thought about is that background is helpful to then so many people who mm -hmm. are growing the animals. And Correct. again, they aren't the vet. They call the vet for the really intense stuff yep. if, if a cow is really sick. Mm -hmm. But otherwise you can handle it. Yeah. Because yep. you're kind of partway there. Yeah. When, when it's something that you're doing every day, you see everything. And so... And we've got several vets that are on call that we can call and say, hey, this is going on with this cow. And if they can't make it out there, they're gonna say, okay, why don't you try this line first? See if this works hmm. and we'll try it. If it works, great. If not, then then you get the vet out there. So why, what happens with cows? Why do they get sick or do they get sick or injured? Or like, what's what are the common things that you're 
treating anything and everything uh it kind of depends um cows you know mama cows they stay relatively healthy i mean they very low stress um most of the time you know they're out on green pastures of some sort um even when they're when they're in a corral like this you know they're still allowed to, to roam free um cows they do stay pretty healthy more often than not it's something when they're giving birth um that like a prolapse um which would be a prolapsed uterus correct mm -hmm. yeah sounds scary <laughs> yeah it's not fun um and then in the feed yards um you got you that's a more stress stressful situation you know those those calves are being brought in they're in pens with calves that they might not necessarily know have grown up with um and it's it's kind of like kindergarten like they're just like you know <laughs> i was just gonna say they're just looking like around to school and, for the first time yeah, yeah and they're trying to figure it out um you know, maybe they haven't been given some of the vaccines that they should have been given. Um, so their immune system is, is then going to be a little bit lowered. Um, and so feedlots are probably, um, you're treating animals more in a feed yard than you ever would yeah. be cow-calf side of things. What then, beyond that, what, what's, what's the biggest challenge of growing meat, growing animals for beef? Mm. Um, the biggest challenge for us, I would say, even though Will would be a third generation rancher, if he were to go back up to the family ranch, we are technically first generation ranchers now. Mm. Um, and, and so the toughest thing for us would be not, not having that established operation. I mean, everything that we've had, uh, we started out when, when he left Simplot and we, we leased this tiny little feed yard, um, and you, you just have nothing. I mean, you're, you're building your way from the ground up. And so we just didn't have that established operation to go back into. And and those guys have their own sets of challenges. You know, I mean, I'm not um, dismissing, dismissing their struggle. But for us, it's just having the equity um, to grow and, and knowing that, you know, we don't have land that's bought and paid for. It's, you know, we're making the payments on it. Um, that's yeah. probably the biggest struggle is, is the balance of, of growing and, and how to grow it wisely. Yeah. So land, yeah. it's a huge deal yep. for farming and yep. especially for people getting into farming. Correct. Yeah. And especially in this area, I mean, the basin is primarily irrigated ground and, and you can't afford, it does not pencil out to pay 18,000 an acre and put cows on it. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it does not pencil out. And so it's that balance of you know, how do we make this land work to have cows on it? it yeah, that's that'd be the biggest challenge for us. And you talk about, okay, yeah, you have to make payments on it. Mm -hmm. So every year you have to produce enough and sell enough beef yep. to make those payments. Yep. So if you have a bad year, it's not even just like, well, we at least need to make sure we have food on our own table. Right. But you've got to make those payments. Yep. Otherwise, you're done. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. When, when we first started with our own feed yard um, and, and we couldn't make payments, I mean, it was, we did not have enough head to make, to make it work. And we knew that because we were just starting. And thankfully I had a full-time job in town and that's what we lived off of because we didn't, we had no other choice. We had to make payments on the feed truck. Um, <laughs> and then in the summers he would go work uh, dryland wheat harvest for some college friend of ours. And that's, he would 
drive bank out wagon in the summers to help make payments on things. And it took several years of doing that before we got enough head to start making those payments when we didn't need Mm -hmm. to be doing all that other outside things. What was the hardest point? Was there ever a point where you didn't think you could make it? No, no. I, uh, I've never once doubted that we could do what we're doing Hmm. ever. It's, it's, even though it was hard. Yeah, even though it was hard, uh, I, we're both of the mindset of we're going to make this work one way or another. And yeah, we're not going to have a lot of things and we might have $10 at the end of every month after we've made all these payments, but we're going to mm-hmm. make it work. And I've never once doubted that. You talk about you, you know, off, off farm, off ranch work yeah. to make the payments. Yep. What? other stuff have you been doing? What so, are you up to? <laughs> uh, I have my another business um, that I do two different things. Um, I'm a contract uh, organic inspector. Mm. And then the other side of that, I consult on organic and food safety standards. So um, it just depends on the day, what hat I'm wearing. Sometimes yeah. it's a cowboy hat and you're with cows and other times uh, you're sitting in a boardroom full of growers and you're yeah. either inspecting them or consulting them. So you're the person that they're afraid of showing up to inspect them? I don't think I'm that f- scary, but I'm told <laughs> I'm told that I'm tough and that I am kind of scary, but I don't think I am. So organic inspector, that's to make sure like a place that says they're organic and is labeling their food organic Correct. is actually following organic practices. Yes, they are following the NOP standards. To be Correct. certified. Organic. Correct. Yep. Yes. What, what should people know about that world? I know once you get into the world of actual organic farming, it's different than maybe what people expect. It, people are shocked that organics still spray. Um, hmm. And sometimes they spray more because what they're applying isn't as potent uh, as its yep. conventional counterpart. Yep. Um, but they still have to spray. They still have to, to either prevent or treat for disease and pests. And so I think that's the number one thing people are shocked about is they, they think it needs no spray. Right. Uh, when it, it does, I mean, there's plenty that they, that they apply. Right. So it just has to be registered as an approved material is all it is. Organic pesticide. Correct. Yes. That's a, a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff. How do you keep track? I mean, that would, that's more information I'm sure than my brain could hold. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's just something that's interested me. I don't, I've done inspections for 12 seasons now. So for an inspector, I'm, I'm old, I'm seasoned, uh, cause the life of an inspector is not very long. It's, you just have to have the right brain and the right mentality to go into it. And, yeah. and I love it. I mean, I love, like we were talking about earlier, like every operation is, is the same, but it's different. Everybody yeah. is doing something a little different. And so every time I do an inspection, it's different. Somebody is doing something different. And I've met some super amazing, great people. Um, and I've met some not great people, yeah. but I'm, it, it's just, it's fascinating how differently you can grow an apple. Yeah. And it's also interesting to hear, like you talk about audits, food safety and organic and a lot of other things too, that you aren't necessarily involved with that go into growing food mm-hmm. and making sure it's safe yeah. and all of these kinds of things yeah. that most people don't get to see. No, no. You, I mean, you would, 
a, a, com, a consumer would never have a reason to, to sit through an audit. You know, they don't know yeah. how many audits that grower actually has to go through to get that apple, watermelon, lettuce, whatever to your table. Um, I mean, the amount of paperwork that they have to keep is astronomical. And um, it, I mean, in the basin, I don't even, I don't remember what the percentage of jobs that's related to ag just to support this industry. And even though that fuel delivery guy isn't working on a farm, he's still having to go out to farms every single day to deliver True. fuel, you know. And that then is part of the food system. It because is. Because it's required to be able to grow the food that we eat. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that, I mean, to to swing it back to like our, our direct market, um, I mean, this area produces billions of dollars in in, in food. Mm-hmm. I mean, this county is the largest ag county in the state, mm-hmm. but we don't actually eat any, I mean, it's very few, there's a low amount of, of that food that actually stays here. It's mm-hmm. exported or, or it's shipped off somewhere. Um, and, and with our store, my whole point was, let's bring that here. Let's bring that to the community. Because when you have neighbors that live next to an orchard, but they can't even get the cherries from that orchard, mm. you know, there, there's a disconnect there. So let's make it so that that food stays here and you can go to that store. Um, and not even just our store. I mean, there's several of these that you can go and you can buy the food that is grown here because it, there's just a massive disconnect. Why do you think that is? I, I want to, I mean, part of it would be regulations and then, and then part of it is food safety. It's, it's just, there's just, I think a lot of different issues. I mean, the liability for a grower to allow somebody to come in and pick fruit is, is massive because if yeah. that person gets sick for whatever reason, they're going to turn around and they're going to sue that grower. So the grower is saying, okay, I don't, you know, I don't want any part of that. Or if, if they're not picking cherries the right way, you're going to damage that limb for the next season. And so they're just mitigating their risk and then they're, they're shipping it to a warehouse to then, to to take care of all of that so i and two i think there's people are afraid of um you know we we would love to have people out who want to learn about beef you know whether it's here or in the feed yards and host tours and and talk about that but i think up until the last few years there was kind of that wasn't the norm i mean it was kind of like how can we plant trees around for you know so people can't see in and then you know what you know, that consumer is like, well, why, you know, why are you being so what secretive? What are you trying to hide? Right. Why are you trying to hide? Yeah. It's not that they're trying to hide anything. They just, you know, I think growers for the longest time just didn't think that what they're doing is interesting enough to have people out to learn about it. What is the biggest thing that people should know who aren't around farming or ranching? What, what should people know about their food, where it comes from and the people who produce it? I think the that we care. I mean, this is, this is our job and it's, I know it's cliche because everybody says it's our livelihood, but it, it really is. I mean, if I'm not putting a good product out there and if people don't have the faith that what we're doing to produce your beef is safe and reliable, they're not going to buy it. And if they don't buy it, then we don't have a market. And no. then we, we can't do this. You know, I can't play cowboy. It, it we, we really are trying. Yeah. So yeah, we, we want it to be a good, safe product. We don't want you to have to go to Australia to get your beef. 
know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'd say that for every farmer. I mean, every farmer loves what they do. They want to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have people buying your product, then you have to go get a job in town. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you for having me here. Thank you. And showing us all these different pieces. I mean, my head is spinning. I have a million more questions, <laughs> but we only have so much time here with you. Thank you for being on the podcast with us. And um, yeah, good luck. <laughs> thank you. Raising food for people to eat. <laughs> yeah, we love it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 